Uh, well, we're in week three of this series called Why I'm Not a Christian. And as Paul did week one, I just want to assure you that this t- series title is not about me, that I actually am a Christian. I believe very much in the stuff that we talk about every week up here. You may have thought, because I haven't been up here for three weeks, that I've left the faith. I want you to bone assure you that I haven't. Uh, I still very much believe, and I've loved hearing Kevin and Paul um, come and preach for us. I love the fact that we have a diversity of voices here that you get to hear uh, uh, you know, different people all the time. You get to hear uh, different points of view. Uh, but I believe very strongly in what we get to talk about up here. But, but that series, Why I'm Not a Christian, is based on an essay actually a series of essays by a British philosopher by the name of Bertrand Russell. Uh, Russell was an atheist, and uh, he wrote this essay in 1927. And if you've seen the movie The Case for Christ, uh, this essay was featured prominently in that movie. It was actually a big inspiration uh, for um, Lee Strobel before he became a Christian. It was uh, something that was very influential in his thinking. Uh, But each week in this series, what we're doing is we're taking one argument from the Russell's essay and looking at it through a biblical worldview. And what we see is that his objections, even from 1927, are very similar to the same objections that we hear today from non-Christians. I mean, I meet people who are new to our church a lot of times, and uh, they are not believers. You may think that's weird, that people would come to church even though they don't believe, but it happens all the time. We get people who are dragged here by their wife or their husband. We get people who are curious. They're seeking something. They don't know what it is, but they're here, and they don't believe what we're talking about. I think we've created a culture here at Genesis, where uh, an atmosphere where uh, we can build up believers, but it's still safe to explore your doubts. And so I, th- I think most of our church knows that if you have a, believer, uh, a neighbor who's not a believer, you can invite them and know that they're consistently going to get you know, a, a good biblical message, a, a non-threatening environment, and great music. And so hopefully that you know that. But when people come here who are not yet followers of Jesus, we, we hear some of the same objections that we're talking about over these four weeks. When I'm out talking with people and I share my faith with somebody... Um, These are the same kind of objections I hear. When you're sharing your faith with people, you may hear some of these same objections as well when you're sharing with neighbors or coworkers and you're asking about their faith. And so because these are real objections people have to our faith, uh, real questions people might want to ask God if they could, what we don't want to do is minimize them. We don't want to say that their, uh, their doubts don't matter. We don't want to try to explain them away, or especially in light of today's topic, which we're going to talk about injustice today. We don't want to make excuses for these objections. What we want to do instead is we want to look at them through a biblical worldview, okay, to, to explore the hidden side of the issue. Because uh, what is the less obvious side of the question sometimes can shed a lot more light on things. So, because let's be honest, we live in a society, don't we, that loves easy answers, We love the 24-minute sitcom ending where everything's wrapped up in a neat bow. We we love the political points of view where one side is absolutely right and can do no wrong and the other side is out of their mind, right? We love uh, sound bites and tweets and snaps and one-minute Instagram videos and 15 minutes of fame. But the real truth is that real life's not like that. Real life is messy. Truth is messy. People are messy, And the simplest answer, the one that seems like the most obvious, isn't always the right one. And so uh, we're going to talk about that today when it comes to injustice, too. I want you to open your Bibles, if you happen to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this on the floor around you. And Romans 1, I don't have a page number here, but somebody probably does. If you can get there before me, sword drill real quick. It's like page uh, 782, 782 in this Bible. 
Romans chapter 1. The objection I want to look at today is this. The church is responsible for so much injustice. So in other words, the question is, how can you be a Christian when this church, this very institution that you claim to represent, has been responsible for so much injustice over history? And uh, in his essay, Russell neatly summarizes the argument like this. He says, in the so-called ages of Christian faith, there was every kind of cruelty practiced on all sorts of people in the name of religion. And the sad truth is you don't have to look very closely at the history of the Christian church to find its darker moments. I mean, you go back, most people go back to the medieval crusades where uh, groups of people who belonged to certain churches would kill so-called pagans and heretics in the name of Christ. Or maybe you go to the Spanish Inquisition, where, which had the stated goal of ensuring orthodoxy for people who were converting to Christianity. It was supposed to be people converting to Christianity, making sure that they had uh, good faith, that they had good orthodoxy. But the result was over 150,000 people were charged with crimes, and as many as 5,000 people were executed. Or uh, in our country, you've got the Salem Witch Trials, uh, where many young girls especially were put to death seemingly to protect the faith, the Christian faith. And maybe the closest to us today is uh, many of the founding fathers and the powerful landowners in the 18th century and 19th century in America used the Bible to defend the idea of slavery. It, it was argued, for example, that the Africans uh, were descended from Noah's son Ham, that they were a result of sin, and that's why their skin was darker. That the trade winds from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of the southern United States were so favorable that it must have demonstrated God's providence on the slave trade because otherwise the boats wouldn't have been able to get here so easily. And, and it was often argued when it was brought up, a passage of scripture that argued against slavery, people uh, who were in powerful positions would often argue that that was for the, the culture and the time which that was written. It didn't really apply to us today. It wasn't really relevant anymore. Ah, but you say, those are history, Steve. That's not today. And I think that's a dangerous point of view for us to take. Because those of us who are Christians, and especially those of us who have been a Christian for a long time, we can tend to be immune to the fact that injustice still exists. And in some cases, still exists in the name of God. In fact, if you ask people outside our community, okay, outside our belief system, uh, what they think when they hear the words evangelical Christian, uh, you might hear things like, Abortion clinic bombings, uh, protests at funerals, uh, signs telling people who God hates or who that group thinks they hate, uh, homophobic, people who want to take away the rights of women or minorities or immigrants. And here's what I want you to hear, and especially if you are a white, middle-class Christian and have been for a good part of your life, there are many people, many people, who have experienced injustice or judgment or persecution from the church or from someone in the church. And sometimes we just sail right past it because it doesn't affect us. But I'm confident that there are people here in this room who have experienced something like judgment or hurt or injustice from the church. I mean, for some of you, maybe it's something about your past that's caused somebody to tell you that you're not welcome or you're not accepted. Uh, maybe you were sexually abused by a Christian or by someone representing the church, a pastor. Uh, maybe you've just seen how some Christian leaders seem to use their position to gain power, or to build up uh, their own kingdom, or to get money. Or, or you've seen something done by Jesus' people or people who claim to be Jesus' people, and you know it's not right, and you don't want any part of it. And if you're here today and any of those things describe your story, I just want to say I'm sorry. On behalf of the church, I'm sorry that 
what, for what you've struggled with. I'm sorry for what you've encountered. And I want you to know, I want you to know that I can relate. Uh, most of my life, I spent not in church. Uh, in fact, to this day, I was still have not been a Christian longer than I've been a Christian. Although that day is coming, it's getting close. But I went uh, when I was growing up. We never went to church. But for about three years in middle school and high school, my parents divorced when I was very young. And for about three years in middle school and high school, when I'd go see my mom on weekends, she would take us to church. Uh, we started going to church. I was baptized there. Um, it, it was an influential part of my life, obviously an influential time in my life. I'm talking about 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, okay? Um, my mom at this church met a man. He was the brother of the pastor of this church, and she got married, and they started life together. But before long, he started pushing her around. He started abusing her, uh, certainly emotionally, definitely verbally, and sometimes physically. And she filed for divorce, and we got kicked out of the church because my mom filed for divorce. I was 16 years old, and uh, such a pivotal time in my life, and I could not go back to this place where I felt accepted and had friends and had been baptized, this place that was my refuge. And I was confident that I would never, ever be a Christian. Someday I'll tell you how that story ended for me. I've heard it said that the best argument against Christianity is some Christian's. I think Mahatma Gandhi probably said it more eloquently when he said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. And then he put uh, his finger on the problem when he said, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And so I wanted to point you to Romans 1 this morning because uh, Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church. He, he wrote it to a big church, a church in Rome. And, and most of the church in Rome, unlike many of the churches that were around the, the world at that time, many of those churches were started by Jews who had converted to Christianity. But in Rome, there weren't that many Jews. There were a lot of what they called Gentiles or non-Jewish Christians in the church. And so Paul starts out this letter talking about injustice. Now, although the NIV, the version that we often use here in uh, Genesis, doesn't specifically use the word injustice, many translations use that word. I think the NIV uses wickedness in its place. Uh, but many translations use injustice. But Paul does a brilliant job of laying out the issue of where injustice comes from. And so we're going to start in Romans 1, 18. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on these side screens too. He says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now stop right there for a minute. Something I want you to see is that wickedness, or that's uh, injustice that some translations would have it, injustice suppresses the truth. He says the truth he's talking about is the gospel, okay? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that when people uh, say something or do something harmful, that it has a tendency to suppress the truth, that it can keep the gospel from spreading. So when Christians, for instance, protest against a certain group of people, it doesn't help spread the good news. When you post some rant on your Facebook page about the behavior of a certain group or a certain person, it doesn't advance the kingdom of God. He says that, that, the, the, that this kind of injustice suppresses the truth, and that was, that's what was happening to the church in Rome, that the church was being suppressed. Okay, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that the people are without excuse. I love this verse because I, I've experienced this in life, and I've experienced this in nature, and maybe you have too. Have you ever been uh, in a place where you've looked at something, something that, that's out in nature, something that God created, and you thought to yourself, how could anyone ever believe this is an accident? 
Have you had that thought? I've had that thought many times. The, the time that comes to mind is we were um, at Disney World. The, the year before we had our first child, my wife and I decided to take a trip. We went to Disney World. I had a friend that worked down there. It was a great... Anyway, um, so we went to Disney World, and we stayed on property at one of those uh, hotels that you can take the, the paddle boat from downtown Disney to the hotel. And uh, so we're sitting there, we're waiting for the paddle boat to come, <clears throat> and uh, there's fish in the, in the lake, obviously, and then there's uh, a great blue heron. I don't know if you've ever seen a great blue heron. Big bird, right? Um, beautiful bird. And so they have these little gumball machines where you put a quarter in and it's got fish food. And so people are, like the kids are feeding the fish, and I, I thought, oh, let's feed the fish. So we put a quarter in, and we feeding the fish, and we're watching this heron. He's just like across the bank, maybe five feet from where people are feeding. And so I decide, well, maybe the heron wants some food. So I throw a piece of food to the heron, and the, and the heron doesn't budge. And so I thought, well, maybe the heron didn't see it. And so I, like, hit the heron in the wing, you know, and he didn't do anything. He's just watching. He's watching the people feed these fish. And so I throw another one, and I think I hit him right on the top of the head. And, like, certainly he saw that one, but he doesn't budge. And then I'm watching this for, for literally minutes, and then the heron reaches down and picks up one of the pieces of food that I threw. And he flies across the stream, and he drops the piece of food in the water, and a fish comes up and grabs it, and the heron grabs the fish and eats it. <laughs> what the heck? How did that happen? Like, how does he know that? Because he's not an accident. Because he's created to do that. He's created with a brain that is wired to figure out how to catch fish. I'm like... God, how can anybody believe this is an accident? That this heron just somehow was exploded from molecules and they all came together to form this heron that knows how to pick up a piece of fish food and feed a fish and eat it. It's not an accident. That's what Paul's saying. He said God's tried to make it clear through his creation, his eternal power and his divine nature. So there's no excuse not to believe in a creator God. Oh, I love that. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And here, right here, is what Paul is going to go on and say, this is the cause of injustice created in the name of Christ. Okay, this is the cause of injustice. It's people who, although they know God, they neither glorify him as God or give thanks to him. And in a lot of cases, especially these major faux pas in history, like you've got to travel pretty far down this road to get to the Spanish Inquisition, right? To get away, that far away from God. You've got to walk pretty far away from God to get to the slave trade or to get to the Holocaust. But, but the sad truth is many of us walk down this road away from God on a regular basis, so when uh, things go south in our life, when circumstances uh, hit that we don't understand, it's so easy, it's so easy, isn't it, to blame God or to at least stop thanking him, stop glorifying him as God. And so we can wonder and we can doubt, like, God, are you really in control? Are you really still there? Do you still hear me? And as a result, we take him off the throne and we put ourselves on the throne. That's what Paul's saying. He said they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like human beings. And so here's what we learn from this, and, and this is in your notes if you want to write this down. Injustice happens when we trade God's agenda for ours. When we trade God's agenda for ours. He says they knew God, but they never glorified him. And if you look back across history, 
at, at these injustices that were caused. And if you look at injustices that are caused today in the name of Christ, what you see is people who know God, who maybe even claim Christ, but they're not seeking to glorify him in their lives. We, we step away, we turn away, and what's the result? Well, we can look down a few verses and see. But first, I want to say this, because if you know your Bible very well, if you recognize this passage, you may see, you may recognize this as the homosexuality passage. And it's the one place in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that most directly addresses the issue of homosexuality. And for, in fact, verse 24 to 27, we're not going to camp there today because that's not what the sermon's about. But Paul talks about how people in Rome are engaging in homosexual acts, and he condemns that. But here's what I don't want us to miss. That was not the problem. The homosexual acts were not the problem. Are they wrong? Yes, Paul says they're wrong. But that's not the, he says the root of the problem Paul says, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Because of what? Because they didn't glorify God, because they didn't put him on the throne. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And so that's true for all sin. That's true for all of our sin. That's what we do, is we exchange the truth about God for a lie. We take our agenda, and we put it on the throne ahead of God's. So here's the thing about injustice, and especially as it relates to Christians today. Guys, we are so hung up on behavior as Christians, we are so really, really good at judging people, at discriminating against people, at looking at their behavior and, and putting people in categories. And the truth is, at least for some of us, probably for all of us, is that we assign people value based on their behavior. Now, you may not think you do this, but I bet if somebody doesn't have a job, they have less value in your eyes. And if they have a really important job, they have more value in your eyes. If somebody drinks or smokes or takes drugs, they may have less value in your eyes. But if their house is neat and clean and they still manage to homeschool their six kids and they grow their own organic vegetables throughout the year, they have more value in your eyes. I mean, don't we do this? I mean, you probably have different categories, but you know, different than mine. But maybe it's based on how they dress or what they drive or how they drive or who they voted for, but do you ever categorize people, give them values based on their behavior? You see now what Gandhi meant when he said, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So what happens as a result? Well, Paul goes on, verse 29. He says, they have become, remember, the people that take God off the throne, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, and that, that word again is injustice uh, in some translations, wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. There aren't enough ways of doing evil in the world. We're going to make up our own. They disobey their parents, kids. That's what happens when you take God off the throne. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And that Paul says, that's where injustice comes from. Now, a couple of things about this before we talk about a solution, because there is a solution. Uh, we don't ever want to be the kind of church that just presents a problem and say, now go fix it, or presents a problem and leaves you like hanging your head and shuffling your feet. We want to be a church that gives you hope, and there is hope, and there's hope in this, because God is good. He's good, and he's never going to let us down. We always want to leave you with hope when you walk out of this place. You, you guys... All week long, you go to a place, some of you, that has no hope. And so on Sunday, at least, when you come in here, you can leave with hope. 
And so I'm going to give you that. But okay, to be fair, not all injustices are caused by the church. I mean, over history, atrocities have been committed by nearly every worldview. I mean, the communist Chinese and Russian and Cambodian regimes all rejected organized religion, yet they're responsible for more acts of genocide than any organized religion. Uh, if we look to today, we see ISIS carrying out crimes against humanity in the name of Islam. And in Myanmar, which is a place that's special to my heart, there are Muslim Rohingyas who are being persecuted and enslaved by the Buddhist majority. The Buddhists! Every segment of society, every worldview has caused injustice in the world. Why is that? Well, pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we can only conclude that there is some violent impulse so deeply rooted in the human heart that it expresses itself regardless of what the beliefs of a particular society might be, whether socialist or capitalist, whether religious or irreligious, whether individualistic or hierarchical. There's a wickedness, a violent impulse so deeply rooted in the human heart. Now, this is true. And what it means is that the existence of violence or of injustice doesn't uh, necessarily invalidate the beliefs of that worldview. You, you know this from other experiences. For instance, you, you've probably seen uh, injustices in the medical system. You've seen uh, doctors who are greedy and overcharge patients. Uh, you've seen doctors that prescribe drugs and don't, just to keep people's business. Uh, maybe some are uh, lazy and they misdiagnose patients. Some recommend procedures that aren't really needed. Uh, but still, I don't hear many people say, oh, I don't go to the doctor. They're all hypocrites. Right? That's probably not a good... Um, a good, a good strategy for your health life, by the way, is to skip out on all the doctors because you think they're hypocrites. Um, but still, even if injustice committed by Christians or the church doesn't invalidate the beliefs of Christianity, there's some things that we can do as the church, that we can do to redeem uh, the reputation of the church. You know, we can redeem this idea that the church should be a shining example of peace and justice in the world. We should be the beacon of hope for the entire world because that's what Jesus called us. He said, you are a shining city on a hill. And so if you're, if you're not a Christian and, and you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope I've helped you understand uh, some ways that we get off track sometimes. I, I hope you see that it's not inherent in Christianity to cause injustice, to be bad or evil or hypocritical, but sometimes that we, even as Christians, we stray from the path that God has for us, and that causes injustice. But for the rest of this message, if you're not a Christian, you're off the hook, because I want to spend the last few minutes uh, talking to Christians in the room, uh, because I think there are three things we can do to begin to redeem this idea that the church should be a place of justice, all right? And there, there, these three things are in your notes, too. So number one is this, be humble, to be humble. Remember where you came from. Remember what it was like for you before Christ came into your life. Remember what your behavior may have been like. What were your priorities before Jesus came into your life? What were the things that you held dear? How was the way that you spent your weekends before Christ came into your life? Just think back for a moment at the you you used to be. How different was that person? How far has God brought you? Remember, one key uh, to the good news of Jesus is this. Romans 5, 6 reminds us that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That, that Christ died for the ungodly while we were still powerless. My English teacher would rearrange that sentence to put the subject first, the subject being Christ. Christ died for the ungodly while we were doing what? We were powerless. That word uh, translated means... Uh, without power. <laughs> it's my, my Greek coming out, right? 
It means that we had no power. We couldn't do anything. We had no power. That, that Christ did it all. That, that we were just a participant. We were the object of the sentence. And Christ was the subject. That Christ died for the ungodly. Who was the ungodly? It was me. And it was you. So how can we boast about the, how far we've come, about the great things we've done when it wasn't us, it was Christ in us. You didn't have anything to do with it. Christ died for you while you were powerless. He died for me while I was powerless. We had no power to change our situation, so God did it for us. And so when you're humble about that, knowing that it wasn't you who saved you, but Christ who saved you, your whole way you view people change. Because honestly, when I'm humble, I recognize that if Christ can save me, he could save anybody. And so how can I assign people value? How can I judge people outside the church, outside the body, when I was there once myself, and Christ died for me, and he saved me? Be humble. When you recognize that, it's easy to do the second thing, which is to be compassionate. That, that word compassion comes from two Latin roots, actually. Passion, which means to suffer, and calm, which means together, to suffer together, to suffer together with. When we see someone who doesn't know Christ or who we think should know Christ, but whose behavior is not what we expect. Uh, we're not supposed to judge their behavior. Instead, we're supposed to be compassionate toward them. And Jesus is our model in this, as he is in all things in life. But Jesus, when he saw people outside the church, he saw people uh, who weren't following him, uh, this is what he did. In Matthew 9, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. There's that word. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to think about this because we don't have a lot of sheep in Indiana. We do have some sheep. We don't have a lot of sheep. But if you were driving down the road and there was a sheep standing in the middle of the road, what would you do? You could uh, get out of your car and yell at it. You dumb sheep! Don't you see this is a road? Don't you know you're not supposed to be standing here? Don't you see the sign? It says speed limit 55 miles an hour. Are you moving 55 miles an hour, you little sheep? No, you're dumb. You're just a sheep. Get out of the road. You could do that. Maybe not effective. You could uh, go around it and then go home and post something on your Facebook page. Sheep are so stupid. I can't believe it. You know, you could, you could subtweet at them, right? Little, uh, can you believe how stupid sheep are? And then that poor sheep never knows you're talking about it. Right? You're just talking to everybody else about it. You're gossiping about the sheep because you're talking to everybody else and not about the sheep. Right? You don't do that. No, what do you do? It's a sheep. It's a sheep. It's harassed and helpless. It's like a sheep without a shepherd. It's a sheep without a shepherd. What I hope that you would do is to take the sheep and gently lead it back to its shepherd to show it where it lives, to show it where it belongs. Lead it back to the shepherd. And that's what we're supposed to do with people who don't know Christ, and that's what we're supposed to do with people whose behavior is not what we expect. Is we have, hey, do you know, do you know the shepherd? Let me introduce you. Let the shepherd fix their behavior. That's why they have the hook. And this leads us to the third thing, third thing we can do to redeem the church reputation, and it's to be a listener. To be a listener. One of the things that you find out very quickly in ministry is that everybody has a story. And most people are willing to share that story if you ask. And, and if you're willing to ask, and if you listen well, and not judge, not condemn, not talk about behavior, don't jump right to behavior, because we love to jump right to behavior. But if you listen to their story, they'll give you little clues of where they've been hurt, 
and why they believe what they believe and why they behave the way they behave. And you can use this not, not to make them into your next project, okay? But you can use it to really love them well. Being a good listener often means that we have to ditch our agenda and replace it with God's agenda. But remember, doing the opposite is what got us here in the first place. Right? That's what causes injustice. And so here's what I want you to do this week. Have a conversation with somebody who's different than you. Right, take somebody who has a different color skin, who's a different national origin, who has a different political point of view. <gasps> Even if you're stupid? Yeah. Somebody who um, has a different faith background. And have a conversation where you do 25% of the talking and 75% of listening. Some of you are sweating just thinking about that, aren't you? Not to correct, not to cajole, but to gently lead them back to the shepherd. Be humble, be compassionate, be a listener. I really believe those three things are the keys to bringing the church back to where she needs to be because, look, I'm a big believer in the church. I am. I, I'm a big believer in the church. I've given my life to the church. I, I gave up a great job at a great company surrounded by great friends to walk in here and be a pastor because I believe in the mission of Jesus and I believe in his bride, the church, and I believe that if there's any change of any importance to happen in this world before Jesus comes back, it's going to happen through the church. It's going to happen through you and me. I still think the church is relevant and I think if we can return to our first love, if we can take our agenda off the throne and put God's agenda back on the throne, I think we can still be a shining city on a hill. And I just want to show you as we close what this might look like. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we see this picture of the first church. The first church, after Jesus has died and been resurrected, he ascends into heaven, and his followers form this church. And there's this passage, this great passage that talks about what the church was like in Acts 2. And it says this, uh, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, and man, this could, hold, this could be a whole sermon right here, okay? But every, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And watch this now. Enjoying the favor of all the people. The church, as a result of the way they lived their life, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. What does that mean? It means people like them. And not just people inside the church, okay? Not just other Christians, but all people, all of the people. Even the people that didn't believe what they believed looked at their lives, they looked at the first church, and they said, those are good people, because of how they loved one another, because of how they loved those outside the church and took care of them, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And how different is that from the way that people view the church today? And what was the result? What was the result of enjoying the favor of all the people? The result of the way they lived their life was this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what I want. That's what I want for our church. That's what I want for my life. I, I, I want to give the rest of my life to robbing hell to pay heaven. Right? To, I want to be able to look around in heaven and see people that are there just because of our church. Just because of your faithfulness. Because of my faithfulness. And because time and time again, we chose to sacrifice our agenda and put God back on his throne.
pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I just feel compelled to say I'm sorry for the times that we, <clears throat> we turn away from you. I'm sorry for the times where I've personally taken you off the throne of my life and put myself back on. And Lord, I thank you that as I grow to become more like Christ, as you transform my life, that those are times times are becoming fewer and further between. But Lord, I still do it, and I'm still sorry. And I know that we in this room, we still do it. And so Lord, we repent from that. We want you on the throne of our lives. We want to follow you. We want to not be the cause of injustice, be the cure for injustice. We want to be the, the, the solution and not the problem. And so help us this week. Help us to be humble. Help us to be compassionate. Lord, help us to be a good listener. We need you to do that, Lord, because we all have our own agenda. We all have our own preferences. And if we're not careful, our flesh will overtake your spirit. So, Lord, I just pray that you allow your spirit to dwell in us this week. Help us to be very present for the people we encounter. And help us to lead them back to you like a sheep without a shepherd. Pray these things in Jesus' name.